Welcome in. Good to have you. We got a lot to do today, and and it almost feels like uh, a, a record player stuck on repeat. Rashida Talib back in the news. We'll tell you why coming up at two fifteen. But I want to start in the autos because Ford came out after GM did yesterday, saying that it is anticipating a fully year adjusted operating income of ten billion dollars to about ten and a half billion. In 2023, that reflects the $1.7 billion in lost profits from the 41-day UAW strike. The Blue Oval had withdrawn its annual guidance last month pending the ratification of a tentative agreement with the UAW. And now that workers have approved the agreement, and to make up for expected decreases in EV premiums, production, Ford, looking at cost-cutting measures to improvements uh, to its manufacturing process. Now, after increasing its guidance following the second quarter from improvements in the supply chain, higher volumes like the new Super Duty trucks and lower commodity costs, Ford said that it had expected an adjusted operating income of up to $12 billion in 2023. The original guidance was between 9 and $11 billion. So even with the uptick in cost per hour per union worker because of this new deal, Ford's immediate future looks pretty bright, at least in the eyes and minds of shareholders and on Wall Street. Now, there is another angle to that. And that angle is, could the UAW have done more? Because remember, these auto companies were saying, we're done. We're tapped out. We're not going any further. Because we feel like this is a fair deal. This is a record deal. But we're we're tapped out. This well is bone dry. And in the end of the day, you look at where these adjusted operating income costs come in. Pretty good. Pretty good. And in fact, even exceeding what they had originally set out, at least in Ford's case. So that puts maybe the UAW and leadership in an interesting spot, because do union workers look at it and say, boy, we could have done more. Boy, we could have done more. Uh, if we just would have... You know, if we would have struck that that Kentucky plan a little longer, or if we would have forced their hand by, you know, sending everybody to the picket line, what else could we have gotten? So it's interesting, and and maybe this isn't something that's forgotten in the next four and a half years when you got to get back to the bargaining table, but it's an interesting look. And and look, I, I have taken a pretty pragmatic approach to the whole strike between the UAW and the Big Three. I mean, I, I don't have a dog in the race necessarily, right? I'm I'm trying to paint the picture for you. And from my vantage point, this is a win-win in the sense that workers get a big deal and the UAW, get, or, or excuse me, the big three get back to doing what they do, and that's building cars, building good American vehicles and not prolonging that production bubble any further, not blowing it up any larger. So at this point in time, look, everybody seems to be pretty happy. And I think Ford and GM will see what Stellantis has to say about their operating costs, but but everybody seems to be pretty happy. Uh, meanwhile, the UAW says it started an effort to organize workers at 13 non-union automakers with U.S. factories. The union says it's seeing widespread grassroots support from employees at plants after reaching labor deals with GM, Ford, and Stellantis. And Big time, wage increases, COLA, the whole deal. Now, here's where the effort 
really focuses on. Tesla, Rivian, and Lucid. They also focus on 10 foreign automakers like BMW, Honda, Hyundai, Mazda, Mercedes, Nissan, Subaru, Toyota, Volkswagen, and Volvo. Now, I have some really good audio for you from JR Morning today. Uh, The crew talked with Merrick Masters, Wayne State University business professor, labor expert. You've heard him here on our show, too. But they talked to him today, and he's got some very interesting things to say. And, And I, you know, again, have to agree with a lot of what he says. We'll get to it. But I still feel like, based on the geographical location of these facilities alone, the union has an uphill battle to try to unionize these workers. Because what's happening is those companies are seeing what the UAW was able to get out of the big three, and they are answering in their own way. So there is a little bit, there's not as much urgency for workers to unionize. But it's still going to be very interesting to see how much how much success that the union has in some of these places where a lot of these facilities are located in right-to-work states. Um, some Donald Trump news today. A New York appellate court has reinstated that gag order barring him, Donald Trump, his attorneys, from making public statements about courtroom staff in the ongoing $250 million civil fraud trial. Judge Arthur Engeron originally issued the order which barred the former president from making public statements about his court staff after Donald Trump made numerous comments about a clerk who says he says is biased against him. Now, there is reports from the judge's office and chambers that hundreds of threats were made against him and the law clerk last week, and he received 20 to 30 calls per day to his personal cell phone and 30 to 50 messages daily on social media and two personal email addresses, according to court papers. So that gag order gets reinstated once again. Uh, accolades, meanwhile, from around the globe are trickling in in remembering former presidential advisor Harry Kissinger, who died at the age of 100. Now, Kissinger, if you remember, ushered in the modern era of diplomacy, opening the door to a relationship with China and continued to build on that relationship as late as summer with meetings with the Chinese president in July. Henry Kissinger was so well-loved in China that Xi Jinping called him an old friend. WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne has this remembrance of this towering figure in American history. Hi, Marie. Hi, Chris. Uh, there's You don't even know where to start with the history of Henry Kissinger. He had visited China more than 100 times in his lifetime. And that last trip this past July at the age of 100 uh, was the last trip he made there. He escaped from Germany and the Holocaust. And many believe that that is really what helped shape his statesmanship. He believed in pursuing global stability above everything else. His big achievement was pursuing secret diplomatic talks that eventually forged the 1973 Paris Peace Accords. That ended the U.S. military involvement in Vietnam. And many Americans were war-weary at that time. He shared the Nobel Prize for that work with the Vietnamese leader, Le Duc Thao. 
It was Kissinger who oversaw the behind-the-scenes outreach to the People's Republic of China. This was back in the early 70s where the United States and China had absolutely no relationship. And this resulted in the restoration of full diplomatic relations between Washington and Beijing. Former Secretary of State John Kerry said of Kissinger he wrote the book on diplomacy. He gave the vocabulary of modern diplomacy, things like shuttle diplomacy and strategic patience. President Nixon and Kissinger sometimes were at odds. They had a stormy relationship uh, behind uh, the public eye. But Kissinger helped fill in some of the gaps where Nixon was lacking, as an example, in public and with the press. Kissinger just loved his celebrity status, and he was known for a lot of his quick wit and his one-liners. And one of his most memorable quotes was, on gender relations, nobody will ever win the battle of the sexes. There's too much fraternizing with the enemy. Mm. And Chris, it was this uh, uh, year ago when he was 99 that he published his last book, Leadership, Six Studies in World Strategy. He was vital and relevant to the very end of his life. No doubt about it. And, and this is somebody you mentioned that the influence that he had as secretary of state, uh, as as a um, as a as a. A, a, a real aid mm-hmm. to not not just Richard Nixon, but certainly Gerald Ford as mm-hmm. well. Um, but that also came with a lot of criticism of of uh, Henry Kissinger too. It did indeed. Um, a lot of people believe that um, his uh, support of certain strategies where people. Uh, civil rights or uh, human rights were maybe violated that um, he did not deserve a lot of the accolades he received so he was criticized for that often. He was often known to be pretty tough with his uh, subordinates and his staff so sometimes he rubbed people very much the wrong way. Yeah, Uh, Marie Osborne good stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Rashida Tlaib back in the news again. We'll tell you why next on JR Afternoon. I tell you, it's different. It's not the same stuff. Yes, Rashida Tlaib back in the news. This time for actually bucking against the squad, which is really interesting. I mean, generally, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, they're all on the same page. I mean, you want to throw the, the, the second wave of the squad in the mix, the Corey Bushes of the world, Jamal Brown, uh, Bowman's. Um, Generally, they're all on the same page. But Rashida Tlaib, interestingly enough, breaking with the squad and joining just one Republican in voting, not voting for a resolution that affirms Israel's rights to exist. So Rashida Tlaib voted present on on the floor. Now, look, is that a no vote? No. But is that a no vote? Yeah. Sure is. Also, Thomas Massey of Kentucky voted against it as well. Now, the bill was introduced by Mike Lawler of New York, and it affirms that a variety of widely accepted facts about Israel and the Jewish people, including the atrocities of the Holocaust and the history of the persecution of Jews. Uh, in In a statement, Rashida Tlaib argued that the resolution ignores the existence of the Palestinian people and brings us no closer to a peaceful coexistence. Massey took issue with the resolution, 
which stated that denying Israel's right to exist is a form of anti-Semitism. He took to Twitter, saying that anti-Semitism is deplorable, but expanding it to include criticism of Israel is not helpful. Howard Lupovich is the professor of and director of the Cohen Haddow Center for Judaic Studies at Wayne State University and joins us. Professor, good to have you. Thank you. Good for ha- thanks for having me. D- does this, um, you know, I, I think that we we find ourselves in a time when the word anti-Semitism is thrown around a lot. Does does Thomas Massey have a point in this case that that if you include certain things in this type of resolution, that you're no longer able to be critical or criticize Israel based on their stance on a number of issues. It it just is an interesting fact that somebody of his position decided to take a stance against it based on the language. Well, first of all, I would say is that the fact that these two voted against it, it's really much ado about nothing. It didn't really change anything. But to your question, I'll be very, I'll, I'll just be very succinct is that, uh, criticism of the policies of the state of Israel, the government of Israel, in and of itself, is not simply criticizing policies. Uh, sure. if, if it goes beyond, you know, the problem becomes when, for example, to, to delegitimize the state of Israel according to a set of standards that you don't apply to any other country. For example, let's say the, let's say the reason for delegitimizing the state of Israel is because of human rights violations. Uh, well, if you only apply it to Israel, in other words, if you're singling out the Jewish state for censure and delegitimizing, well, that's the same as singling out an individual Jew or a Jewish community. That's anti-Semitism. But it is entirely possible to be critical of the government without being anti-Semitic. And I think I, I think uh, the, the, the congressman from from, uh, from Kentucky, with all due respect, yeah. I think his understanding both of criticism of the state of Israel. And anti-Semitism is kind of narrow. Sure. Were you surprised by the way Rashida Tlaib voted on this? No. Uh, the difference between her and the rest of uh, you know her group, uh, the squad in, in, in Congress, I mean, the one thing about her that's different than the rest, she's actually Palestinian-American. Uh, and she very much has to answer to a constituency of Palestinian-Americans and Palestinians elsewhere that have very strong feelings on this subject. So she has the burden of answering to a constituency with her, which her colleagues do not have. I'll, I'll be I, honest with you. I'll be honest with you. I'm not even 100% sure she really believes that, but there's no question politically she had to vote that way. That's well, why President sure. did not know. Sure. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that when you vote it, when you, when you don't vote for a resolution saying that, that Israel has the right to exist... To me, that that brings up a whole other host of issues, namely, perhaps a fanning of the flames of some of the 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 protests that we've seen around the country that has that has, you know, I think rightfully spooked a lot of students on college campuses. Just for one example, uh, those being Jewish students. That's a great point. That's a slightly different matter, but it's also a very valid point. It would have been nice if at some point in the last two months. Congresswoman Talib, who is an important spokesman, she is an important member of this community. It would have been nice if at some point, without renouncing or diminishing her support and solidarity with the Palestinians, the Palestinian movement, she could have said something dissociating herself from the violence you know, perpetuated by, perpetrated by Hamas. That would have been nice. Uh, and I think 
this is an instance where, yeah, you have a point. Symbolically, it, it, it would have meant a lot if she could have recognized a bare, bare minimally the right of the state of Israel to, to exist, to defend itself, as she does with every yeah, and, other and, country on earth. It, it, absolutely. And for me, when you don't vote in favor of that, that, that tells me that either you're ambivalent to the fact that Israel is is existing or you're against it because you didn't vote in favor of it. And I think that that can be pretty dangerous uh, in a lot yeah. of cases. Well, I, I think uh, she, she, she is someone who's in a position to, to say with, very credibly and very forcefully that any argument you can make in favor of Palestinian statehood is also an argument in favor of the establishment and legitimacy of the state of Israel as a Jewish state and vice versa. You, you really can't support one without the other. And I think she knows that. But like I said, she's in a difficult political position. And, you know, and no pres- you know the, the way she voted, it's more politics than anything else. And that to me is what is what is really rotten about this situation is we are letting politics, you know, get in the way of either good policy discussions or or the ability to get all on the same page. And when when the when the one squeaky wheel is is drawing the most oil well that can be problematic just from the the sense of a unified congress a unified voice coming from the united states of america and i think that that's something that we just don't have at at present moment do you feel like politically this could this this will the the these constant uh efforts to um to to have her voice heard on this issue do you think that helps her or hurts her politically Oh, that's that's a great question. I, 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 personally, I think, and I'm no maven on the subject. I think, given who her constituency is, I don't think she gets elected or not elected based on anything having to do with Israel or the Palestinians. In, in her her district, she gets she, she will get reelected because of things she does with jobs and employment and infrastructure and health care. So, I, I I think she feels very strongly about this, and she voiced her view. But I, I think politically. I don't think this really affects her chance of re-election or her standing in Congress at all. Uh, Wayne State University's Howard Lupovich, thank you so much for your time as always. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. Yeah, you got it. And look, I think for for me, you know what what we what we will see eventually, and if it gets to the point where a vast majority of Democrats are standing strong with the state of Israel as an ally are making sure that the United States continues to be a player in 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 the sense of of whether it's a mediator or a supplier of of munitions or funds that 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 continues to be a strong alliance. I could very easily see you know different packs, different people who donate money, maybe not giving as much to Rashida Tlaib, but there are for for every void that could be made or left by one group, another group could come and fill it. And and look, I give Rashida Tlaib credit here. She is incredibly, incredibly um, uh, seen and involved in her district. And that's not something that all lawmakers can say. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. All right, I want you to, to do me a favor here. If you're driving, don't do this. But if you're at home listening on, on Alexa or Google or just streaming us on WJR.com, I want you to close your eyes, all right? I want you to think long and hard about this presidential election. 
I don't, I'm not asking you to pick anybody yet. But I think if you're a Republican, I think if you're a Democrat, quite frankly, these debates with Republicans are important, right? You know what, Donald, what, what, what Joe Biden is, okay? At this point, you know. You also know what Donald Trump is. But as you sit here with your eyes closed, I want you to raise your hand and if 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 you wanted a debate between Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis, go ahead, raise it. I'm sure nobody is because nobody asked for this. I don't know why we're doing this. But tonight at what, nine o'clock, Sean Hannity will moderate this debate from Georgia between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom. Now, what's interesting here is that Gavin Newsom, for, I, I should probably say weeks, although it's probably been months now. I don't, the time is a, is a real uh, devil here. But for the recent few weeks, Gavin Newsom has been poo-pooing this idea that he's going to run for president that he is somehow going to challenge Joe Biden in a primary, that he is somehow going to leap Kamala Harris as the Democrat candidate. He is he has every step of the way poo-pooed this idea that he will be running for president. Ron DeSantis, we know, is running for president. Ron DeSantis is looking to win the GOP nomination to go up against, we presume, Joe Biden. But is there something underlying here? Is Gavin Newsom running some shadow campaign? Just in the event Joe Biden can't go, just in the event Joe Biden decides to change his mind and not run for a second term. It's an interesting kind of inflection point as we enter this this this, you know, 12 month span of the 2024 presidential election. Ron Stevenson is the director of debate at Wayne State University and joins us. Uh, Ron, it's good to have you. Thanks, Chris. This is an interesting one. Do you remember a time where. You've got two governors debating each other during a presidential primary a year out where one is, you know, if you look, depending on which poll you look at, falling third on the GOP side of things. And then on the other side, the other podium, a guy that's not even technically running for president. Have we ever seen this before? Not in my lifetime. It's definitely a highly unusual political event, but it's made for TV. It's probably got some There's ratings. No doubt. I don't know. Anybody wants it, but it's going to be interesting. That's what I think. I'm not sure anybody wants it either. What do we expect to hear tonight? What What are some of the the the, the topics we expect to 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 be thrown their way? So I think the part of the reason and possibility, assuming that it's not Newsom running the shadow campaign, that you'd see him up on the stage is he's setting himself up for 2028, and I do think he's likely to be the face of the Democratic Party then. You know, this could be a good snapshot of what the presidential debates are in 2028. But the issues you'll see are immigration, because that's one of those primary issues that affects both California and Florida. Abortion will be center stage as well. And then their economic policies. But what's really going to be, I think, telling is how much Newsom compares what he's done in California versus trying to speak as a proxy for Biden. Because if it's more in the line of like advocating for his own policies. I think that's a good tell that he's really setting himself up for a future run. Hmm. Who has the most to lose here? Who has the most to gain, do you think? I think they both will probably gain, um, only because DeSantis needs this 
as a chance to shore himself up as the you know heir apparent potentially in the Republican Party. I think he's going to finish second, maybe third, depending on how he deals with Haley um, in the primaries. But for 2028, if he wants you know to be the Republican nominee, he needs as much press time as he can. And one of the best ways to do it is to contrast himself with somebody from a very blue state. And then Newsom on the flip side of that, I don't, he doesn't really have anything to lose because he's not running for office. Um, he's only supposedly speaking as a proxy. And this gives him an audience, uh, a national audience, that he doesn't otherwise have access to, unlike DeSantis, who's running right now. You know, the idea of, of Gavin Newsom serving as a proxy to Joe Biden, do you believe that voters who will be dialed into this tonight look at that as a as a knock against Joe Biden, as as an effort to, you know, you, you got to get other people out there to almost to fight your battles for you in a certain way. Not that Joe Biden would debate uh, Ron DeSantis at this juncture, but is it is it is that would that be a turnoff, do you believe, to, to voters? Um, I'm not real sure to be a turnoff. It really depends on sort of what the sound bites are that come out of it. I think the primary mm-hmm. justification for Democrats to put him up as a proxy is he's much more progressive than Biden. And he's also younger. So, you know, you don't have a cantankerous old man up on the stage. You know, it's kind of what we saw with Trump and Biden. You got that young face that everybody's been saying they want. And so if they can get some sound bites that, you know, get the base, the Democratic base motivated, because that's a big problem for Biden, they can only help him um, because he's doing poorly in the polls right now. And they just need something to shore it up. And if that's him talking in favor, then I think it could only help him. Based on the the debates that we've seen Ron DeSantis in, you know, I think there's a little bit of a of a strange facade uh, for Ron DeSantis. He, he doesn't always seem totally genuine in my eyes. Um, there there does seem to be almost this plastered on kind of smile at certain points or at, at certain inflections based on what he's saying. You know, Gavin Newsom is a little bit more polished in that sense. Do you do you feel like this will be a, an inflection point for Ron DeSantis to try to pick up some more Republican support? Yeah, I absolutely think that's the reason he agreed to it and why his campaign is pushing it. And it gets him out independent of the other potential Republicans, which I think is an important thing. It establishes himself on his own. But yeah, he's got to be able to hold himself. If his argument is, I'm the one that can beat Democrats, if he can't hold his own against Newsom, that I think really puts him in a difficult spot. But yeah, he doesn't look authentic, I think, to a lot of people. And he feels, I think he's a little uncomfortable in front of the spotlight. And I guess more practice, the better. But again, it's another one of those, any good press, or any press is good press kind of moment for sure. him as well. Yeah, interesting stuff. Ron Stevenson, thanks so much for your insight on this. Uh, it'll be an interesting debate, no doubt. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Yeah, we'll talk again very soon. That's Ron Stevenson, the director of debate at Wayne State University. Do you believe that this is almost a move by Ron DeSantis? This is a an all chips in the middle of the table. This is an all in. Ron DeSantis wants to be on a stage where no other Republicans are, and he can speak from a position of authority he can speak from on a position of here's what i would do and there are no but there's nobody else in this stage no other republicans on this stage that are going to push back on that so he becomes almost the quasi authority figure for the republicans on that stage but at the same time for me 
Gavin Newsom is a little more polished. Gavin Newsom is uh, is somebody that has been through the ringer in California to a certain degree, the recall efforts and, and winning that that special election. This is somebody who's who's been through the ringer and has come out the other side. It's one of the reasons why I think he's a very popular choice to potentially succeed Joe Biden. Love to get your thoughts. 800-859-0957. 800-859-0WJR. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. 800-859-0957. 800-859-0WJR. We're wrapping about this debate tonight. And if you're thinking, oh, is there a GOP debate tonight? Nope. <laughs> nope. It's just Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom going at it from Georgia. And Georgia, I mean, certainly has turned to a different shade of red over the last couple of, of election cycles. It's gone much more purple, I'll tell you that. And the Republicans are making a much larger effort to to hit Georgia in a different way, to hit Georgia in a more impactful way. Because they've come up empty in Georgia, at least from a federal standpoint, the last couple of election cycles. So this this debate tonight between Gavin Newsom and, and Ron DeSantis... Look, I don't know that who asked for it. I'm not sure of how important it is. But I think from my perspective, this is a way for Ron DeSantis to put all of his chips in the middle of the table. This is kind of an all-in approach for Ron DeSantis. There are no other Republicans on stage. He is speaking from a position of authority. He is speaking on a, from a position of, these are my policies. And there's nobody here to tell me it's right, it's wrong, yell at me, you know, whatever. None of that exists for Ron DeSantis. On the other side, Gavin Newsom, who, you know, you read stories from, from different people, you hear things, and there is a, a, at least in some circles, a idea that Gavin Newsom is, is running some shadow campaign in the event that Joe Biden can't go, in the event that Joe Biden changes his mind and isn't going to run for president anymore. And the idea is that Democrats would put Gavin Newsom to the front of the line. Now, he has spent the last couple of months poo-pooing that idea. He has, he's been very dismissive of the idea that he is going to be the next leader of the Democratic Party. But it's very interesting that he would agree to something like this when he really doesn't need to. 800-859-0957. Let's go to Dave in Rochester. Hello, David. Hey, Chris. How are you? Good, man. What's going on? I disagree with you totally. This is a very useful, relevant, uh, timely uh, debate of actual policies uh, chasm between the Republican Party, the new Republican mega party, and the current Democratic progressive liberal party. Uh, I think these are two guys. You know, Florida, Florida, Florida is a, the mega's darling as far as thinking they have all all the state's results that are superior to California. And, and, and Newsom will inform those viewers that no, here's the data. Here's where you could go find the data. The United States Bureau of Economic Analysis, the actual government data, as far as like our per capita income, even when you adjust it for their higher cost of living, is superior. Whether you take median or the wealth per capita, the, the disposable income per capita, you know the the education levels attained per capita on average. All right, so Dave, let me let me ask you a couple questions. Let me ask you a couple questions. Hold on, hold on. Hold on, let me ask you a couple of questions here. A, do, who, who do you think stands the most to gain 
And B, do you think Gavin Newsom, part of this, the idea of agreeing to something like this, you think this is this is him putting his foot forward, saying that he's the guy if if Joe Biden can't go? Yeah, he's got no other shot. He's falling behind. This. He, my God, he's going on Bill Maher. He's going on things he never would have dreamed of going on before because right. he's, he's he's so far behind. And who's to gain from this? Biden. Joe Biden's to gain from this as well as Newsom. Ooh. Interesting. All right, Dave, appreciate the call. Thank you. Let's go to Eric and Dexter. What's up, E? Yeah, thanks for taking the call. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to see the policies of two radically different uh, camps. And Nikki Haley doesn't have a record, but Ron DeSantis does have a record, and it's exemplified in his state of Florida. And and uh, Newsom's record is exemplified in his state of California. So this is well, okay, great- but, uh, Eric. Eric, can I just let me just I just want to correct you on one thing, and I'll give you more time. She was the governor of South Carolina. All right, so that's that's a pretty solid piece of information to go off of. It's not just a small sample size. And she was the ambassador to the United to the United Nations for the United States with Donald Trump. I mean that that is a that's a pretty serious resume i think we've never heard about her record hardly at all though other than international stuff we want to hear a little more about domestic issue there are tons of domestic issues right now that are going begging and everybody can be an armchair general uh talking sure. about foreign politics and she may have done some of those things but we're at a time for domestic policy okay all right, good stuff, Eric. I appreciate the call. Thank you. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. This is not a surprise. Uh, and look, we'll continue to field your calls, but I do want to throw this into the mix because this is something that we have been looking for, and now it's officially done. In Corktown, there is now the first wireless charging roadway in the United States, and it's located right there on 14th Street, near Michigan Central. It's just a quarter-mile stretch, but below the surface there are uh, technologies that allow your vehicle to absorb a charge as you drive over the roadway. It's very cool, very futuristic, and here to talk about it is Jennifer Mefford, the National Co-Chair of the Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Training Program. Jen, it's good to have you. Great to be here, Chris. Uh, this this is isn't, exciting, like I said, it's not... It? It, it is. Yeah. It's 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 not that we didn't expect it. We knew the construction was going on. We knew this was coming. But now that it's finished and it's operational and it works, if you if you got your your EV, you drive over it, you get a little juice. I think it's very cool, very exciting. Yeah, I think it's really appropriate that it be located as part of this innovation hub in Corktown. You know, next to New Lab. It, you know, it it really is just appropriate that we have that as a test area for the technology. And that, you know, the intention really of the roadway is to prove out wireless uh, wireless embedding into a roadway system with delivery vehicles. Think about mass transit. Think about anything that's on a route that's either going to be idling or traveling along a similar route. Similar to a wireless cell phone charger, um, it transfers the electric, electricity directly through a magnetic field. Um, when there's a receiver that kind of comes over those coils. So it's a pretty cool technology. I think we're going to be seeing more of this. How, yeah, and that, that was kind of my next question. I think that obviously the, the infrastructure of charging stations and, and those 
uh, pieces of the infrastructure are very important. But when when you're able to put this type of charging inside a roadway where you don't have to, you know, it's no muss, no fuss. You're just able to go about your business and get a charge all at the same time. How realistic in the next 30 seconds I have left here, how realistic is it that we would see in the near future even a majority of roadways uh, fitted with this type of technology? You know, I think that they're just putting those those coils just down into the construction, but the rest of the roadway process is similar to what it is for building a road today. So I think it's scalable, and that's part of what this track hopes to really prove out. But we are also seeing some really interesting technology through um, Y-Tricity at the Detroit Smart Parking mm. Lab, and those are wireless paths, Chris, that you or I would pull our vehicles onto, right? Maybe that you're having in a garage at your home or a garage or a, a a position at work where we would be driving onto those. So I think we're just sure. starting to see wireless coming our way. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a whole other way of charging your vehicle. Uh, and it's, it's certainly exciting, even though we knew it was coming still very cool. Uh, Jennifer Mefford, thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, you got it. Uh, 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Uh, let's get to the news, get you caught up on a couple big stories happening today. Uh, lots to do still, uh, so don't go anywhere. Chris Renwick uh, with you here this afternoon on JR Afternoon right here on WJR. Good to have you. Three o'clock hour here on the show. And still a lot to do today. And, you know, I... I I think that when we look back on these negotiations between the UAW and the Big Three, um, you know, I think it was a, a pretty good job done by by all. The UAW were able to get a huge deal for the rank and file of the union, and it looks like the automakers were able to give enough while still not giving in to the profits that they had been seeing. Because now Ford says they're anticipating a full year adjusted operating income of 10 to $10.5 billion in 2023, which reflects the $1.7 billion in lost profits from the 41-day UAW strike. The Blue Oval had withdrawn its annual guidance last month pending the ratification of a tentative agreement with the UAW. And now that workers have approved the agreement, Ford looking at cost-cutting measures and improvements to its manufacturing process. And after increasing its guidance following the second quarter, higher volumes of the super duty trucks, lower commodity costs, you put it all together and Ford says that their expected adjusted operating income for this year could reach $12 billion. The original guidance was between nine and 11. So even while the uptick in per hour costs from the automaker to the union worker is up Ford still looks like at least in the eyes in the minds of shareholders and those on wall street, um, their future is still pretty bright. So that's a very interesting, uh, kind of tail end to the strike and the negotiations and then the, the ratification of those deals. Meanwhile, speaking of the UAW, the union says it started an effort to organize workers at 13 union automakers with U.S. factories. The union says it's seeing widespread grassroots support from employees at plants after reaching labor deals with the big three that granted a big raise in wages. You saw tears go away. You saw uh, cola come back. That's um, a big, big, big concessions made by the big three. 
So you look at Tesla, Rivian, Lucid are the three U.S.-based EV manufacturers that the union is going to target. Also, BMW, Honda, Hyundai, Mazda, Mercedes, Nissan, Subaru, Toyota, Volkswagen, and Volvo also all in the mix. All those companies have facilities here in the United States, and now Sean Fain and company want to attack those workers. They want to unionize those workers. Now, the issue here is that a lot of the workforce in those particular plants reside in southern states, and a lot of those southern states are right-to-work states. So so while I think this is the, the time for the UAW strike, I still think they have an incredibly difficult road, an incredibly difficult path to unionizing these companies. A very, very difficult time going forward. But I do have some audio for you from J.R. Morning, Guy Gordon and the crew. They talked to Merrick Masters, business professor and labor expert at Wayne State University. Um, and he had some interesting things to say. So we'll, we'll play that audio for you at 335. Uh, meanwhile, in New York, a court, appellate court, has re, uh, reinstated a gag order banning former President Donald Trump and attorneys from making public statements about courtroom staff in the civil fraud trial that is ongoing. Judge Arthur Engeron originally issued that order, barring Trump from making public statements, barring his legal team from making public statements about court staff, after the former president made numerous comments about a clerk who Donald Trump Pressed says was against him, is biased against him. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Judge Engeron received hundreds of threats, as did the law clerk, according to court papers. Um, so this gag order has been once again reinstated. Uh, also, quickly, the Israeli government is reportedly willing to discuss a different framework for the release of men and soldiers held by Hamas so long as those releases continue. A source with ESPN says Hamas wants to set new terms for the men and Israeli Israeli soldiers. Uh, we are close to the end of that current phase of the deal. They want a different equation. Now we have one Israeli hostage for three Palestinian prisoners, and they want to try to change that ratio. As long as they can provide hostages, we are willing to talk. Uh, again, as that ceasefire continues, uh, where that goes from here, we'll continue to watch for it. Uh, meanwhile, big news today, a cybersecurity breach that affected 8.5 million people nationally has impacted people here in Michigan. WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne has a look at what this massive data breach may mean for you. Good afternoon, Marie. And Chris, what's notable here, this breach went undetected for more than two months. More than a million Michiganders are affected by this breach at WellTalk Incorporated. That's a company contracted to provide communication services for CoreWell Health and Priority Health, an insurance plan owned by CoreWell. The uh, compromised data includes names, dates of birth, email addresses, phone numbers, medical diagnoses, health insurance information, and those all-important Social Security numbers. The breach occurred May 30th. It wasn't until August 11th after the company hired a third-party cybersecurity specialist and reconstructed its systems and historical data that this breach was uncovered. Cybersecurity attacks are a big problem in healthcare these days. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reported that data breaches among healthcare organizations more than doubled 
from 2019 to 2021. And in 2022, there were at least 28.5 million health care records that were breached. There have been several of them right here in Michigan, big ones. A ransomware attack took down the computer network at McLaren's 14 Michigan hospitals in August and early September. And in late August, the University of Michigan shut down its campus computer network after a hacker got access to the personal information. A wide variety of people who had interacted with the university were affected, including patients, medical patients. The data compromised included driver's license numbers, social security numbers, credit cards, and even medical records. And Chris Corwell has sent letters out to affected patients and has offered a year of credit monitoring. Well, that's a good move. I think that, you know, we we as patients trust these companies to to do their best in making sure that we're we're protected based on the information we give them. Although, Marie, I mean, we, we are we are entering a stage where it it feels almost impossible uh. that these breaches are inevitable. And I think that at least what what these hospital systems can do is provide that credit monitoring, making sure that for a certain amount of time they're keeping an eye on it and and that you're safe but it almost feels inevitable to a certain degree doesn't it uh, it sure does um i will say some critics though have said hospitals really need to do more because with hospitals they have our medical information and you know that that could be used certainly uh, against us. So they're saying that hospitals need to make security the top priority. Uh, Things using like two-step authentication for starters, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Identify weak spots and risks. And they want, uh, they say also you have to put in place multiple layers of controls that can interrupt an attack once it happens or once they see that it's happening. In the case I just outlined for you, it was two months before they discovered it. So critics are saying hospitals need to be way more proactive on this front. And you're dealing with millions and millions of people across the country, obviously, certainly here in Michigan, too. But um, it it never feels good. It feels like a violation. It feels like like you are exposed. And that's not a comfortable place to be. And especially, look, we're entering the holiday season here. I mean, it's not a comfortable place to be when when there are things that you have on your to do list. Um, and you're just worried about whether or not you're going to have enough in the account based on a, a you know, a, a cyber attack. Right. Exactly. So it behooves everyone to really monitor all of your accounts during this time for yeah. sure. Marie Osborne, thank you very thank much. You. Appreciate it. All right. We got to take a break. Uh, Nolan Finley coming up next, the editorial page editor of the Detroit News, it wrote an interesting piece. Uh, Israel must finish the job of destroying Hamas. Easier said than done. We'll get to that. Your calls. Your text coming up next on JR Afternoon. So, uh, full disclosure, I'm working remotely today, feeling a little under the weather. But I hope Dave Rieger is back there. I, I, I imagine he is in the fetal position, rocking back and forth, sobbing uncontrollably. Because Dave Rieger, who produces Focus with Paul W. Smith, which you can hear right before me from noon to two, um, is a Denver Bronco fan. And the Broncos will be in town in mid-December. To take on the Lions. And Roger Goodell, who was in town for the Thanksgiving game, I believe, uh, had made a comment to local media. I believe it was Dan Miller on Fox 2 that said he said that networks are calling 
off the hook, basically, to get the Lions on their schedule. And now the Lions are adding another primetime game, this time against the Denver Broncos, Ford Field. Uh, It'll be a primetime Saturday game held on December 16th at Ford Field. I, I do... I do just need to check that. On ESPN, it says uh, the 17th, but I guess that was the flex date to the 16th. Um, 8.15 kick, uh, and I believe uh, that game will be an NBC game. Uh, I guess I don't see what the... Because the Saturday game is is not a normal game, so I don't know what what network's airing it. But Broncos-Lions primetime from Ford Field mid-December. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. I, I, I can't wait for that game uh, personally. Um, in the meantime, we're talking about a lot of issues uh, today, and that includes the UAW in the Big Three, and, and now the UAW rolling out this plan to go after other plants that are not unionized, that are not under the UAW umbrella, particularly those foreign automakers or uh, uh EV makers in the United States, those like Tesla and Lucid. Um, I I don't know that they're going to have a great success. We'll hear some Merrick Masters audio from J.R. Mooring coming up at 335. Um, but if you want to weigh in on that, 800-859-0957. Let's go to Tom in Trenton real quick. Hey, Tom. Hey, how's it going? Good. What's going on? Hey, here's the crazy part. They don't want their plants unionized, but they all hire Detroit contractors to build and maintain their plants. <laughs> I know several Detroit contractors that are working for Toyota, Hyundai, BMW, all across the South because they know Detroit contractors understand under time, under budget, and we build plants. We're very niched in what we do, and they hire us and pay per diem without even blinking an eye. That goes to show you they're not totally against the union. They're not totally against the union, but, again, you're you're talking more of the decision makers up top – as opposed right. to the workers on the floor, I'm not so sure that that flies. I, I think there is a contingent of people that would be willing to unionize, but but the fact that companies like Toyota basically got up to where the UAW deal with the Big Three was, the fact that they got up to that point by themselves, I I think is is will do them good in fighting off the UAW if that's what they want to do. I don't think the companies want the UAW rolling in. But from a worker perspective, I think that that goodwill from the company, getting that uptick in, in hourly wages, I think that helps their cause of fighting off UAW union uh, ship in some of these other facilities down south. Fair? Oh, yeah. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. We don't need political pressure fighting off the UAW like what happened in Tennessee with Volkswagen. Yeah. Republicans yep. need to understand self-determination does not include a political weigh-in because they are against it versus what the vote is of the people. Yeah, there's and no doubt about it. And I think, it, it, yeah, and Tom, I appreciate the call. I think that when you look at it, you know, there are polls out there that show that there is a tremendous amount of support for, for unionship right now. There's a tremendous amount of support for the UAW and their stance that they took on the big three. So I think that there is something to be said about the time to strike is now. I still think they got a tough road in some of these states, just geographically, based on there are a lot of these states are right to work. But we'll hear from Eric Masters coming up at 335. Uh, in the meantime, uh, 
Nolan Finley, our friend over at the Detroit News, wrote an interesting piece uh, talking about Israel and how they must finish the job on Hamas. But Nolan, uh, who joins us now, Nolan, good to good to talk with you. Those those at the top, those making decisions in the Mideast, um, during a ceasefire, it's very difficult because now both sides are able to regroup and and, and kind of gain their footing again. But the IDF and, and Israel seems dead set on eliminating Hamas. Is that easier said than done? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a tough mission, but they've committed themselves to it. And my concern, as I expressed in the in the column today, is that uh, there will be now, now that they've agreed to a ceasefire, and it seems to be dragging on as Hamas dribbles out these these hostages, there will be increased pressure uh from uh, outside forces to continue the ceasefire to make it permanent. And Israel cannot afford to do that. They went into Gaza with an express purpose. It wasn't revenge. It wasn't retaliation. Uh, It was to destroy Hamas, to keep them from repeating uh, their horrible atrocities of October 7th. And they can't, they can't, quit that fight if they do everything they've done so far is for nothing the interesting thing though too is when you go back to the the late 2000s or the mid 20 teens or even as even as recently as 2021 there was always a ceasefire that that put a, a an end to the to the bloodshed but it almost feels yeah and and where do we where does that leave us Eventually, there is more conflict. Eventually, there is more death. And eventually, there is more bloodshed. And so it, it doesn't feel like a ceasefire, a long-term ceasefire, a long-term lasting ceasefire is in the cards here. Well, not unless Hamas is out of the picture. Uh, I think the mission on Israel's part is to destroy Hamas, break its hold on the Palest- on the Palestinian people, on Gaza, find a new governing uh, body for Gaza, whether it's the Palestine, a reformed Palestinian authority or something else, hopefully put together with the help of the Arab world who continues to fund this Hamas terrorism, but does nothing to uh, you know, help push a long-term solution in this region. And then you move on. You can move Forward, hopefully to a more peaceful solution. We haven't had legitimate peace negotiations in the in that region, but, you know, between these two two entities in more than a decade. You know, the other the other thing here is is the hostages, and that's what this temporary ceasefire now is focused on: is getting these hostages out. If if the IDF and the Israelis are able to extract the hostages that Hamas is holding. Does that open up the playbook, so to speak, for for Israel and the IDF when it comes to Hamas and, and their efforts to eliminate them? I, you know, I'm not sure that Israel felt its hands were at all bound by the hostages. I think they've taken the, the made the calculation that some of these hosp- hostages are either already dead or will die. But They've got to do what they have to do to protect the rest of their people. And if they allow 
Hamas to gauge in hostage diplomacy. Uh, this hostage taking will never end. How how much is is Israel influenced by some of the the outside noise from countries around the world, namely the United States, namely those that are outspoken against what Israel is trying to do in in kind of rooting out Hamas, root and stem. Are they influenced at all? Do you think I got 30 seconds left here? Well, I think um, President Biden has been fairly strong for the uh, for the the Israelis. He's getting a lot of pressure within his own party. But I believe Israel's going to do what it has to do. Yeah. Nolan Finley, great stuff. Great piece once again in the Detroit News. We'll talk again soon, bud. Thank you. Yeah, you got it. That's Nolan Finley, the editorial page editor of the Detroit News. You want to weigh in? 800-859-0957. Some interesting Merrick Masters audio from J.R. Morning today, talking about the UAW and their efforts to infiltrate some of these facilities and gain more union membership from automakers around the country. That's next. All right, welcome back, home stretch. Um, you know, we've been talking about the UAW today, uh, especially on the heels of Ford announcing that, look, their annual guidance is, is going to be going further than they had even expected or planned for. Now it's up to $12 billion for the year. Before it was up to $11 billion. The Blue Oval seems to be in pretty good shape, even after they lost $1.7 billion in operating costs from the strike alone, 41 days. GM came out yesterday, said the same thing. So so from those perspectives on Wall Street or shareholders of these companies, they are looking up. Now, we haven't heard from Stellantis yet, so we'll see what, what they're projecting. But certainly some good news from an automaker perspective. And then, again, you look at the rank and file, and they got a good deal. I mean, they really did get a good deal. Now, I, I, part of me questions if union workers for the big three, then question whether or not union leadership did enough to push the automakers. Because remember, what we heard from the big three was we are tapped out. We're done. We're not making any more counter offers. We're done. Here's where we're at. And this is where we'll be. Now, there, of course, is always wiggle room. And there, of course, needed to be wiggle room. Because even after, I think it was Ford said, look, we're done. There is no more back and forth. Here's our offer. Well, there, of course, was more back and forth. So there is always a little more. But then, now, the UAW is embarking on this quest to unionize 13 current non-union automakers in the United States who have factories here. And I don't need to name them all, but the BMWs of the world, Honda, Mercedes, Nissan, Volkswagen, the, that, that crew. And then, of course, you've got the U.S. EV makers like Rivian, Tesla, Lucid. And the union, I think, from their perspective is, well, let's strike while the iron's hot. There are polls after poll that show that the American public views what the UAW did in a positive light. They have a positive view on union membership at this point. And so it, there may not be a better time for the UAW to try to grow their, their membership. But at the same time, as we have seen in other places, specifically down South, I believe the Volkswagen facility uh, voted to not unionize not long ago. Um, 
I still think there is a very difficult path based on where these states are, based on where these factories are located from a geographical standpoint, because a lot of these states are right to work states. A lot of these states are more right leaning states. And so they don't want to have the union come in and be this, you know, big brother, if you will. So I still think even with all the juice that the UAW has currently, I still think it's a tough road to hoe when you consider the the locale and the type of workers that are in these plants. Um, I don't know if you heard it this morning. If you didn't, you want the full audio, you can head on over to thegreatvoice.com. But Merrick Masters was on JR Morning today with Guy Gordon and Lloyd Jackson and Jamie Edmonds. And it was really interesting stuff, a, a real interesting conversation. Because for a guy that is a labor expert, for a guy that's a professor of business at Wayne State University in the Mike Gillich School of Business, very dialed into what's going on. And he had some interesting things to say on this and more. I want you to listen to just a bit of this. You say that support for unions is a, it is a historic high and, and modern day high. Um, but is it as well received geographically in the areas where these plants are located, which are in many cases very strong right-to-work states. And we also see that the, these transplants are not standing pat. They're offering these workers the wages that, in many cases, UAW workers are getting or close to them without the, the hassle of organizing or paying union dues. Well, I said it was the best chance they probably had, but I didn't say it was a good chance. Okay. Well, then <laughs> let, let me ask you, I, I, what are the I, prospects? I, I, I think it's going to be an uphill struggle. It's going to be very difficult for the reasons that you mentioned, some of which pertain to location. But also, this is not a a passive playing field, as you mentioned. The companies have already responded. They got ahead of the curve. They got legal advice early on saying, raise your wages before they start an organizing campaign so you don't get unfair labor practice charges filed against you. Uh, and they did that. And they're also probably doing a lot of other things on the ground to address what they consider to be concerns of workers so that they can keep the union at bay. One thing we can take uh, for granted in American business is that it will oppose union organizing efforts aggressively and that they will bring to bear all the resources that they possibly can muster to resist this campaign. And I would expect them to be very adept. And so when the union announces this, campaign like this, it opens itself up to criticism. And now what you're going to begin to see is people are going to say, okay, you want UAW representation, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. And they'll cite the corruption of the union, they'll cite what has happened to the industry in Detroit and in America with the non-union companies having to shed hundreds of thousands of jobs over time and put workers in a very difficult situation in which, as Sean Fain recently said, in the past 20 years, 65 plants have been closed. Uh, Professor uh, Elon Musk uh, was asked about the UAW's aims uh, yesterday, and he says if Tesla gets unionized, it'll be because we deserve it and we failed in some way. I think that is a very common management sentiment, and it's a view held by many that unions rise because of management failures. And I think that that means that they are in tune with what they need to do to keep their workers satisfied. I'm not saying that they'll be successful in that effort or that they don't do things wrong, but I think it's important to realize that if they're not in tune with that, if they don't realize that perspective, then they're going to make a lot more mistakes than they would otherwise.
Uh, Professor Masters, yesterday GM came out and said, like, we're okay. We're going to have some stock buybacks. And do you think Sean Fain is saying, see, I told you these companies were viable and we could have maybe gotten more? Well, I think certainly that, I mean, whoever's doing their PR, I would give them a second look. Uh, and I would say that this is not a, a good look to give, to say that, well, you know, first we're crying wolf. We're saying we can't, we, we were stretched, we're bleed, bled dry. We can't give any more. We absolutely can't give any more. And then you turn around and announce a buyback and say that you can deal with it. You can, you know, you can um, absorb the uh, increased labor costs by raising your prices or improving productivity. Ford sort of did the same sort of thing today. Um, it, it, it just makes the union um, position in this uh, look all the more believable because when the companies plead poverty, uh, what they say is, well, you're really not as poor as you seem to let people believe, and therefore you just showed that you're not. Right. But it's not without some, some costs on the part of the, the automakers. I mean, I think Mary Barra said they cut a half billion in uh, marketing, engineering, and people costs, and they're going to get another half billion squeezed out in this next quarter as, as well. And they, they also are going to be cutting back on some big-time Democrat uh, priorities, which is the expansion of EVs. They're dialing back investment in that. Well, uh, yeah, I understand that there, there will be a reaction. Part of that may be due to rising labor costs, but part of it's also due to the decline in demand for electric vehicles. You just had 4,000 dealers send a letter to the president saying that they've got too many on their lots right now. And also, it could be very well be that uh, these companies aren't run that efficiently to begin with. Um, large organizations, large corporate organizations are not necessarily known for their um, efficiency. Uh, they have a lot of deadwood in their organizations, just like any organizations do. And I think to look for ways to cut and improve performance is a continual effort on their part. Just a really interesting conversation. Again, if you want to hear the, the full the full interview, head on over to thegreatvoice.com. I'm up against it. Take a break. More coming next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. Lots of sports news, big news for the Detroit Lions. And we welcome in Stephen R. Courtney. Hello, Stephen. Close enough. Uh, Christopher, yeah. how are you, lad? Good. What, what do we got going on today? I want to switch things up. We'll take care of some business. I, I want you to tell me what you want to talk about today. Oh, yes. aren't you being the, the cordial one? It's the kind of guy I am. You warm my heart. Uh, this conversation brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Ford. Forward down the field, you know the W's are stacking up. Little disappointment for the wing wheelers at the Garden last night, but they'll be all right. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each and every day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their TrueView inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. Also, the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes wants in on the act. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your windows, roofing, and siding quote today. Log into WindowsRoofingSiding.com to enter Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. All right, you, sir, are a profound Michigan football Wolverine supporter, are you not? I am. That, that's fair characterization. All right, let me just ask you this. Uh, we have gotten to the time of year, I guess. Now, we are two days removed uh, from your Wolverines, number two right now, number two, 
uh, getting together with number 16, Iowa, in the Big Ten Championship game that 8 o'clock Saturday night in Indy. Uh, according to various media outlets there, young Chris, uh, Jim Harbaugh is being bannied about for a few, or as you would say, plethora of mm-hmm. National Football League coaching jobs. As a matter of fact, apparently there has been uh, some heavy conversation uh, from the Chicago Bears camp. Uh, should mm-hmm. their head coach, Mr. Eberflus, uh, get the ziggy? Uh, there's also been some uh, correlation between Harbaugh and the Carolina Panthers. And then the normal uh, teams like the Raiders and uh, things of that nature. My question to you, uh, mm-hmm. have you just gotten used to this? Does it bum you out? Uh, is there a side to you uh, that let's just get it over with and just go? Then I got a follow-up question. So here's my stance on the Harbaugh NFL thing every year, it seems. I don't have an issue with Jim Harbaugh looking at the NFL. I think Jim Harbaugh has been pretty transparent when he has said in the past that he does still have a desire to win a Super Bowl or to try to win a Super Bowl, to get back to a Super Bowl. And so I, my, my impression in talking to some folks and, and just reading between the tea leaves, if Michigan goes out and wins a national championship this year, you put that together with there is no other mountaintop, you would have accomplished the ultimate goal. If... If the NCAA is going to bring down the hammer, not sure why they would. I have my doubts, but whatever. If they are going to punish Jim Harbaugh, there isn't a lot left for him then at Michigan. So I could absolutely see see him go back to the NFL. It doesn't bother me. It used to bother me, but it doesn't bother me anymore. I think a guy like Sharon Moore, having him, I was going to say in your back pocket, but the fact that you know he coached four games this year successfully, right. I to me, he's in the front pocket. This is a guy who potentially could be your your next head coach. So I, I think all of those things considered, I would be okay if Jim Harbaugh left. I'm not sure he will, but but I would be okay with it. Well, that was my follow-up question. Uh, hypothetically, Harbaugh bolts to the NFL. Uh, you automatically give it to Sharon Moore, who has had so much success as the interim guy during the suspension-filled year for Harbaugh? Or let me take it a step further. Uh, yeah. Do you give it to Connor Stallions and fulfill the manifesto? Uh, 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 yes, I would take the latter. Um, no, I. Although, what a story that would be! What a what an unbelievable story for the history books that would be. The next head coach of the Michigan Wolverines and Team One Forty Five, Connor Stall. Oh my God, it'd be unbelievable. Um, no, I, I would give it to Shrone Moore. I would give it to Shrone Moore because there's a familiarity with the players. He is a uh, uh, an otherworldly recruiter and he has learned at at the feet of Jim Harbaugh so if there is if there is a if there is a, a characteristic of Jim Harbaugh if there is a characteristic of a Jim Harbaugh program I would love to see some continuity to that because this team is different from other teams of college football today like there is a there is a desire to win for their school. There is a galvanizing effect of what's happened on the outside and the impacts it's had on those inside Schimbeckler Hall. They're, they're galvanizing for a school, for a team, and that's not something you see nowadays. So if Sharon Moore has any part in that, if they respond to him like I think they do, I, I, I would be very hard-pressed 
to to undergo some sort of coaching search when the guy is obviously right there. All right, now looking forward to that uh, tilt at Lucas Oil Stadium with the Iowa Hawkeyes. Uh, your Wolverines are favored by twenty-two. The only thing I have to say uh, in answer is this: Iowa led the nation in three and outs. <laughs> Not going to be pretty there, Chris. Not going to be pretty at all. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get how Iowa won ten games. I mean, offensively, they are putrid. Offensively, Southfield A and T or whatever they are want to just want a state championship could outscore Iowa. I mean, honestly, they are so miserable on that side of the ball. For as miserable as they are, and I, KB joins us, for as miserable as they are on that side of the ball, defensively, they're pretty good. Yeah, not Defensively, bad. they are kind of vintage Iowa. And so, no, is does Michigan have any chance of losing this game? I would say, of course they do, because nothing is, is uh, guaranteed. But I, I think Vegas has Iowa scoring less than a touchdown no the over the over under for iowa is a half a point in the first half and a half a point in the second half oh god it's obscene uh let's say hello to mr ken brown he's got something worthwhile to talk about all i gotta say is that you plan a team that lost jack campbell and sam laporta from last year's team yeah, that's the difference. So, well, I'm telling you, it's got to be because they're not scoring anything now. I it's just ugly. wish K. McNamara and, and Alt were still around to play in this game. Now, now you would have had a game. That would have been a great game. It didn't matter what happened. That would have been a Michigan against Michigan oh, oh, game. Oh, yes. No, I would. And look, K. McNamara's running his mouth a He's little bit. He's running his mouth. I saw him on the podcast this week. It would have been yeah. beautiful if he'd have been quarterback. And here's a guy. He won't say the word Michigan. Here's a guy, fellas, that's thrown for 505 yards this year. He's thrown four touchdowns, and he's thrown three interceptions. Well, that's MVP in Iowa, right? I mean, that's that's, that's they well, might get a building hurt. named after him in Iowa, that offense. Didn't he get hurt, uh, he, yeah, he hurt his ACL. in the Michigan State game? Wasn't well, that against Michigan State at Kinnick? Yeah. Like the first couple minutes? Yeah, but I think he's uh, good to go. But Deacon Hill oh, is okay. the guy right now. Um, okay. He's thrown five TDs, six interceptions. He's throwing, oh, dear. At a forty-eight point three percent clip, <laughs> Kobe. I just want to see the trophy presentation. That's why I hope Michigan does not yeah. get upset. I want to see what Harbaugh is going to do, or what the rest of the University of Michigan is going to do when the commissioner comes up to give them that trophy. If I were Jim Harbaugh and Tony Petiti stepped on that stage with the Big Ten trophy, I would point to the ground, tell him to leave it there. And well, he'd get off the it's stage. a live moment. You can't go to. You can't. Uh, you know, go to tape. No? You can't go to commercial. Oh, so what are you kidding me? Do, you think Fox is going to go do, to break? Whatever you're going to do, you're going to do it right then. And I tell you what, Harbaugh never forgets. Does uh, Sharon Moore video no. bomb him? <laughs> I don't know. But he yeah, doesn't. I'm looking. He forward puts to that. the he puts he puts the bunny ears behind Tony Patini. <laughs> So, what do we got coming up real quick? I got just a couple seconds. Uh, we're going to do some movie talk today. We're going to talk about Henry Kissinger being uh Okay. What 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 was he really? A lot of people against what, yeah, what he did in the career. A lot of people that was hated in a lot of cases. Yeah, so we'll All right, it's going to do it for us. We'll see you tomorrow.